The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I will be your host alongside James Fox, senior writer at Future Sox. Our guest today, talking White Sox baseball, Joe Brand of WGN Radio, as well as the Kane County Cougars play-by-play man. Joe Brand, you can listen to his podcast along with partner Connor McKnight on the House of L podcast, Baseball from Home. Joe, welcome in. Thanks so much for taking the time. Really excited to have you. Uh, congratulations on the House of L podcast extension, by the way. Uh, I'm really enjoying it so far. We had Connor McKnight uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, and he previewed, mentioned, teased a little bit that he wanted to work on a podcast. So I'm excited to know that you and him are working together. Well, Mike, James, thank you very much for having me, first and foremost. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's real exciting to uh, join forces with Connor McKnight. I used to kind of work for him about six years ago. I was producing one of his shows uh, back when uh, 87.7 The Game was a thing, and it was a baseball-focused show, actually. I remember he gave me, this was the day before the first show I was going to produce, he gave me Theo Epstein's number the day before and said, okay, here's our first guest. And I'm like, oh my God, we have... I have Theo Epstein's number on my phone. I have to hide this. My friends are going to steal my phone and, and text him. I'm going to lose my job. This is going to ruin my career. Uh, so I never saved Theo Epstein's number in my phone for that specific reason. Uh, luckily, nothing terrible happened from it. But um, but yeah, I've just always been a, a fan of the way Connor understands baseball, the way he talks about baseball. So it's been really cool to uh, team up with him on this podcast um, clearly we've, we've done a few of the same paths too. He was the main White Sox pre and post guy for a couple of years. I got to dabble a little bit with it the past couple of years. Um, but we were talking about it before the show guys. I mean, this is a really exciting year for baseball, despite all this craziness, especially in Chicago, because both these teams are relevant. Both of them are exciting and both of them are very, very interesting too. I tell you what, Joe, I know this is a White Sox-centric podcast and we focus on the prospects, but the Cubs are impressive through the first couple of series, three, four series of the year, uh, and that only makes things interesting. Baseball in Chicago, I mean, you know it. When both teams are competitive, the atmosphere in the city, it's a baseball town, really, and when they're both good, it, Chicago really takes its form. 
this city is just so much more fun when both teams are doing well. Uh, we get limited with fun this year because we can't go to the games or uh, socially gather with our friends that are fans of the same team as much as we normally would. But you're right, the Cubs are very exciting. Uh, I don't think anyone really expected them to get off to this kind of start because, number one, they normally don't. Uh, and number two, we're seeing a resurgence of this lineup one through nine, basically. I mean, there's a few blemishes. Chris Bryan, although maybe he's turned it around, uh, having a good game against the Royals earlier this week. Jason Hayward still doing kind of Jason Hayward things. But I said on our podcast the other day, their offense is reminding me a lot of the 2016 offense as of right now. The rotation has been phenomenal. I mean, who would have thought that Alec Mills and Tyler Chatwood would be putting up not only great starts in their first starts, but continuing it with their second. So it's going to be really interesting to see how long they can stay consistent. Um, of course, the bullpen is something to talk about because that's going to come down to eventually hurt them. But now you are starting to see some guys like Jeremy Jeffress take over and, and pull away from some high leverage situations. But I, I think you do have to give a lot of credit to David Ross. I, I like a lot of the things the Cubs are doing right now. Yeah. And you know, you know, mentioned it as well. Uh, the COVID situation, the shortened season, I think looking ahead too, is because we're thinking about, the White Sox playing in the Field of Dreams game. That was, of course, canceled. Hopefully they pick that up next year. Uh, and the Cubs are dealing with a situation, since we're on the topic, where they're forced to travel to St. Louis this weekend, and the Cardinals are involved in, uh, as well as the, the Miami Marlins, just a troublesome situation within their organization related to COVID. And a lot of the focus, mainly on the Marlins, has been on the responsibility of, of Derek Jeter, right? Ownership there, allowing players to get on the field when they knew within the clubhouse that there was this virus being spread around. So I guess let me get your take first on the job that Rob Manfred's doing. I mean, we don't even have to talk about the negotiations. I know the focus really was on financials there. The health and safety is the main priority here. So let me let me get your thoughts on, on Rob Manfred's job in 2020. I think it's fair to bring up the negotiations because I think it plays a big factor in what we're dealing with with Major League Baseball right now. You go back to the negotiations where it's back and forth and it pretty much was fans going against ownership, at least for the majority. I know uh, some fans that were not as educated on the whole situation are, are calling the players greedy, but once you really look and comb through it all it seemed like okay the owners agreed with the players that they'd play pay them full compensation for an abbreviated schedule that seemed fair considering the players were willing to agree to not be paid if no baseball was played and then the owners kind of go back on their words once they started going back and forth basically throwing new proposals, knowing that the other side would turn it down. It just turned into kind of a hissy fit that I don't think anyone was willing to, to follow along with or, or take a side for. Um, in the long run, it really stinks because it's going to hurt the next collective bargaining agreement. Um, that's another topic. But so you go through these lack of negotiations. Once they finally figure it out, they're kind of rushed to start up this season. 
They're like, okay, all right, let's uh, let's get players to the fields in a couple of weeks. Let's figure out this schedule. Let's cram it all together and let's figure out our protocols. It all just seemed very, very rushed. You saw what the NHL did. I mean, they figured out their protocols and their systems months before they were heading back to training camp and all that kind of stuff. And you see the success that the NHL has had so far about avoiding this virus. So that's that's what I don't like because it took so long to get to the spot you wanted to get at. Then they rush it. Then they finally get baseball because basically they were like, all right, we, we gotta get we gotta get baseball on our televisions. We gotta we gotta spread the sport. We gotta appease our fans. And within three games, some team, not even just a player, a team collects half their roster with virus infected players. And what do they do? They make up rules on the fly. The Marlins were supposed to play Baltimore. The Phillies were supposed to play New York. They canceled those series. They had the the Yankees and the Orioles play each other to make up these games. I mean, you're talking about the Cubs who are seven and two. The Marlins have still only played three games. It's just a whole bunch of mess. And now, now they're changing rules of the game. I mean, last week we saw the Sox play 18 innings in one day, and now they're changing it to seven inning double headers. I, I'm used to seven inning double headers in the minor leagues. I think there's some benefits for it. I would understand if they implemented that rule before the season began, but come on, what are we doing? I mean, the the whole fact that this is all being figured out on the fly does not leave a lot of confidence for fans to, to figure that this season is going to finish. And that whole, everything being in jeopardy is going to affect how teams, how managers manage their game, how front offices figure out their rosters, how the trade deadline is going to be approached. I mean, we talked about it on the last podcast, all this help that the Cubs need in their bullpen. What's the benefit for renting a guy? There, there's not. There's no benefit because if you give up an asset that might help you down the road and then the season just totally gets put away because the virus is just too difficult to handle, what's the benefit in, in trading for someone like that? So a lot of things are just still so up in the air. And to make all things crazier, the Cubs and Sox are playing some great baseball right now. You know what I thought? I, and I don't mean to keep bringing up the Cubs. What if the Cubs didn't win the World Series in 2016? And they're trying to break the curse right now. Think about that. Like, if they were to win, how much backlash would they get about, oh, yeah, you won, but it doesn't really count because it's abbreviated season. And fans are probably just even more anxious that their team might finally win the World Series, but the World Series might not even happen it's just, it's, it's a wild, wild time. Joe, you mentioned that both teams are pretty good. And obviously on the South side, one reason why the team is pretty good is Luis Robert here in the early going. We, me and Mike have spent, you know, a lot of time talking about Luis Robert with a lot of different guests. And, you know, I think everybody kind of thought, you know, you, you'd see the dynamic nature of his game right away because of the defense and center and the power and the speed, you know, but even I kind of thought that he would struggle initially and look maybe some of those struggles are coming but to me like he doesn't really look overwhelmed at all to me and now that he's been put up in that number one spot in the lineup I don't really see him giving it back what uh what are your your early observations watching Luis Robert play pretty much a lot of what you just said Uh, I agree keep him at one two for as long as he's hitting Uh, because like you said it's not just about the speed it's not just about the base running it's not just about the power 
It's not even just about the contact. It's it's about his approach at the plate. He he has great awareness of what a guy is throwing, when to swing, when not to swing. I loved his at bat. Was it against Corbin Burns yesterday? Where, yeah, we took the walk. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I mean, he he chases on that slider, and then he learns from it. He learns from it right away. He saw it two two more times in that at bat, and he stayed away from it because he's like, all right, that's not my pitch. He goes after that wicked fastball that cuts in on him, jammed inside. He gets a piece of it just to stay alive, and then he coaxes the walk with that slider once again. That impressed me. Uh, the day they played Cleveland last week where he was right on type, right on top of Zach Plesak's slider, just j- even though he missed it, he was right there. He was right there. And then he comes through in the ninth inning against Adam Simber on that same type of slider just because – he has the awareness of what a guy is throwing. I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm blown away, but I'm incredibly impressed with what he's been able to do right from the get-go at the major league level. I love how they tell him in center field, take whatever you need. Just, just go, just take over offense or defensively in the outfield. And they should, because he's, he's the most athletic guy out there. He's the most defensively sound guy out there. I mean, he just looks like, a major league center fielder, and he's been in the major leagues for a couple of weeks. Uh, I, I really cannot find too many bad things to say about Luis Robert because even if he does make a mistake at the plate, he's a rookie. I mean, I mean, he he's got to have the benefit of the doubt. But again, it's just it's his awareness at the plate, it's his ability to adjust, and it's also his ability to hit almost everything anywhere. Jason Benetti. Uh, on TV for the Sox keeps tweeting out or showing the graphic on the games about the different pitches that he hits in the different locations. And it's, it's a rainbow and it's a spread out rainbow because he's on top of absolutely everything. Yeah. I think, you know, the first time I noticed it was actually the, the exhibition against the Cubs, right? Kyle Hendricks comes out, he carves him up immediately. I wasn't surprised. Nobody should have been surprised. And then right the next at bat, he, you know, he gets a single to right field, like he'd figured it out. And I think, you know, something that I've talked about is he had a 21% swinging strike rate at Charlotte last year. Like, well, look, he raked, but you know, I thought he was just going to have more trouble with, with major league pitching. Um, I, I think it's, you know, something with him where his, his personal strike zone, I think is bigger than we think it should be. And he just swings at, you know, any sort of mistake or anything he thinks he can handle, like he's swinging, he's not up there looking to walk, but he's walked more, already than, than I thought he would so far. And man, watching him play defense is impressive. Yeah. I mean, he, he's aggressive at the plate. There's no doubt about that. He even said it, I, I believe yesterday when he was, when he was asked about his walk. Um, but, but that's the thing again, he's, he's not missing by much when he swings and misses. It's, it's not by much. It's just a little bit of a timing issue. So that's why it's, it's hard to really nitpick about him. Yeah, it is. So, you know, it's a really good offense right now. Um, they're, they're ranked high in a lot of different categories, and obviously that's without Tim Anderson for part of this year. It's without, you know, Nomar Mazzara mostly. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on the offense overall, and has, has that surprised you how good they've been in the early going after kind of struggling that first weekend a little bit against the Twins? Right. Well, you got to you got to give credit to the Twins and Indians. Uh, Cleveland is a lot better of a baseball team than I would have thought. Uh, that rotation, my goodness, um, they were. It just seemed like every guy they pulled out there uh, was on his A game right from the get go. But I, I do think you have to bring awareness to the situation that 
the Sox did not have Eloy Jimenez in that Cleveland series. That definitely took a hit. Um, it took a little bit for Yasmani Grandal to get situated. Edwin Encarnacion, kind of the same situation. You're seeing Grandal hit a lot better recently. Uh, Encarnacion is, is still slightly improving. Um, but but that's the thing. It's This team is now on a five-game winning streak. They're above 500, even though they're dealing with all these injuries. I know it's mainly the rotation, but, I mean, Eloy Jimenez out for that Cleveland series. Tim Anderson's been out the past couple of days, and he will be for the, you know, on the 10-day IL. But they're able to work around it. Uh, the, the lineup is clearly deep. Uh, a lot of power hitters. I said from the beginning of the season, I like – or this abbreviated season can benefit the White Sox because they have such an explosive lineup, they can just create momentum whenever they need to. And and that's hard to do when there's nobody in the park. But it's it's a joyous clubhouse. It's it's a vibrant dugout. These guys love to laugh, they love to smile, and I'm not trying to make everything all sunshine and rainbows, but they got a lot of good chemistry. And I think you're starting to see that, and it's starting to become, it's starting to just become fluid throughout the whole the whole lineup because they all do kind of have a similar approach. Now, once you get Tim Anderson back, and you also have Nick Madrigal in that lineup, that's where you start to see more of a diverse lineup and something that can really benefit the lineup because you've got your big boppers, but then you got guys to set the table like a Nick Madrigal and like a Tim Anderson. Joe, you mentioned Nick Madrigal there, and I, I want to dive deep into that conversation a little bit because about last year at this time, we were really starting to anticipate what the lineup would look like, and we're starting to see it now, especially with the incorporation of Luis Robert, like you've been mentioning. But Nick Madrigal is a part of the conversation now. And I think because of the 60-game season, the implementation of his usage in the Major League Club uh, was a bit different say if it was a 162 game season how the White Sox played it I should say so what was the thought process behind the White Sox decision to wait uh the way they did in implementing Nick Madrigal in the big league club was he ready to go uh once the season was started or do you believe the White Sox played it well and of course you know service time is is part of this conversation but also you can make the argument that hey maybe the White Sox wanted to take their time with him and make sure that at the plate, he was ready to handle Major League Pitching. I think it comes down to service time. I think I think if, if you want to say the contrary, then you're kind of lying to yourself. But I don't blame the Sox for doing it. I don't. Um, especially in a season like this. Because, once again, the fact that this whole season is being played in jeopardy right now, we never know when it's going to end. What if the Sox pulled up Madrigal on opening day and the season got shut down in a couple of weeks? You kind of waste that whole year of service time for something that wasn't even going to happen. Um, it's it's a shame that baseball is set up this way, but the players agreed to it on the collecting, collective bargaining agreement. Uh, what was it, from 2017 to 2021? So they have the power to fix this in the next CBA, but it's just kind of the way the game is going. Now, I know the White Sox are one of the rare teams that are signing their prospects without major league experience to some decent contracts like Elo Jimenez, like Luis Robert. But, you know, you got to give credit to Rick Hahn for doing that because right now it's proving to be the right situation. The other thing is 
The Sox have just had a track record of signing team-friendly contracts with Anderson, Chris Sale, Jose Quintana, and the other two I just mentioned. So there definitely has to be some credit given to the White Sox front office for those uh, deals to be made. But yeah, I, I, I can't see it going any other way than coming down to that because, I mean, heck, was it was it the first day available to uh, gain that extra year of service time? He was brought up. So it's, it's kind of hard to, to see the other side of the coin. But again, I'm not, I'm not blaming the White Sox for doing that. If I were in that situation, I would probably do it too um, for the reason that you get that extra year of service time. And again, you don't know where this year is going to go. Now, I'm happy he's up. I do think the White Sox are a better team with a Nick Madrigal and, and even a learning and a developing Nick Madrigal consistently in the lineup and getting better at second base. I mean, this this lineup is almost about to be what we wanted to see in a couple of years. I mean, Roberts in there, Jimenez is in there, Anderson, Mancata, Madrigal. You got a Jose Abreu, who's uh, clearly not the first baseman or DH of the long-term future for the Sox. But, I mean, do you remember when, like, I, I know this happened to the Cubs and it happened to the White Sox when they – gained all these prospects, ESPN used to put up potential future lineups for this team. And you'd see like one or two guys that were on the team right then and there. And then like, so before the Sox uh, got the resurgence from James McCann or signed Yasmani Grandal, it was you know, Zebby Zavala or Zach Collins behind home plate. And those were the rosters up on the TV. I mean, you're starting to see that now with the White Sox roster and lineup. And it's pretty cool to see. Yeah, you talked about Nick Madrigal and the service time thing. A couple things there. I think it was that it was the service time day where it expired. Um, the Sox had a game, then they were off the next day, and then they called up Madrigal and he made his debut. So, if you're gonna try and convince me that it wasn't about service time, it would be a tough sell, and I think the Sox understand that. It would be an easier sell, like I said, uh, if it was a 162 game season, but. I mean, again, like you mentioned it, why wouldn't the White Sox take advantage of that situation in the CBA? I mean, it just makes all the sense in the world on a business standpoint. Kind of sucks for the player, but that's the way the game is at this point. All right, so I agree with a lot of what you said there. I'd like to move on to a pitching conversation because the White Sox rotation is an area that I think coming into this season you felt pretty confident about, better than you did entering last year, of course, and really over the last few seasons. But we're seeing now some of these Guys in the rotation go down. Jimmy Lambert and Carlos Rodon post-major arm surgery are now hurt again and dealing with some things that might be concerning. So the White Sox are trying to piece together moving forward what they have internally as well as trying to plan ahead. So, Joe, what are you thinking right now, overall observations of what the White Sox are getting out of their rotation and, and specifically from their younger arms like Dylan Cease? Quickly on Rodon. Since it was just yesterday, on Monday, him leaving after two innings, uh, you really hope that that he's just not this fragile. Um, he's he's had a rough go at it in professional baseball. I remember after his uh, exhibition game against Milwaukee earlier this year, he started tearing up because, I mean, it it, it basically all goes down to uh, the birth of his daughter and how that was a big life moment for him. And he got emotional about it because he, he had never faced adversity like that. And he's learning things about himself. He's, he's going through some really tough times, 
But I mean, this is a guy that has succeeded his entire life until professional baseball came into play. So this is this is foreign territory for him. And I really liked him in that scrimmage game against Milwaukee. Um, I even didn't absolutely hate everything against Cleveland. Uh, again, Cleveland's got this lineup that can just have nine guys swinging outside of the zone and still finding contact somehow. I, I didn't think Rodon was horrible that game, but clearly there's some issues when he plays Milwaukee on Monday and his average velo drops down about four ticks. I mean, his second to last fastball, I think was 85 miles per hour. So you really hope these aren't long lasting injuries for Carlos Rodon. And you hope we don't get into the conversation of moving him from the rotation to a bullpen role. Uh, Dylan Cease, he, so him and Carlos Rodon's debuts this year, I kind of felt the same about them. Location was a little bit off. Well, I'm sorry. Dylan Cease's location was seemed to be very off that first game, and that just really kicked him out of his rhythm. And going back to last year, he was dealing with the same kind of issues. He was getting off to a bad start, having trouble commanding the zone early on. As last year, I looked this up courtesy of, uh, well, actually, this is just baseball reference. He had 22 walks last year in innings one and two combined. He had 13 walks in innings three through seven combined last year. That just shows the contrast of whether Dylan Cease is on his game, he's ready to go, and when he's having trouble, locate the ball, or locate the strike zone. So his, his second outing, I take that back, his first outing against Cleveland, he, w- he was having trouble commanding the fastball. It was a little flat. It was The velo was there. It was hot, but... When you can't control it and the curveball starts as a ball and ends as a ball, all those Cleveland hitters need to do is just wait for a changeup in the zone, and that's easy to time yourself up on because that was basically the only decent pitch that Cease had that first game, and he admitted that too. Now, I'm a guy that thinks Dylan Cease can have an elite fastball and an elite curveball, and when you throw a decent changeup, that's a recipe for incredible success. He found more rhythm and more command and more control in that second outing. But the difference was he wasn't missing wildly with the fastball. He was around the zone or in it. So even if you miss by a little bit, you're putting yourself in a better situation to deceive the hitter and even to help your catcher to frame up the pitch better to deceive the umpire. I mean, the umpire is going to be a lot less likely to give you the benefit of the doubt of a call of a strike if you're missing all over. If you're missing just by a little bit, you got a better opportunity to get that framed in for a strike and a better opportunity to have it get called for a strike. Now, I I am interested to see how Dylan Cease will go in his next start against Cleveland because there's a big difference between Cleveland's lineup and the Kansas City Royals lineup, but no one's going to apologize for beating a bad team. Dylan Cease is not going to apologize for having a good bounce-back outing. Um, but I, I still have faith in, in Dylan Cease. The only thing that worries me is he's kind of hitting the same problems he did last year. But he's he's still a young guy. He's one of those, uh, he, like a Lucas Giolito type, where he's very aware of his mentality on the mound, uh, keeping his emotions in check. And we saw Lucas Giolito make those adjustments early this year, too, already. 
So I think, you know, when baseball, you know, decided that they were going to restart, a lot of people, including myself, kind of talked about the, you know, the starting pitching depth that the White Sox had. And, you know, now Michael Kopech opts out, Lopez is hurt, Rodon is hurt. Uh, Rick Renteria said today that Lopez was starting um, a throwing program, and, he, you know, he, I guess, was holding out hope a little bit that Rodon was going to make it back. There's no announced starter for Saturday. I'm thinking Dane Dunning's going to make his Major League debut Saturday. But something you were talking about earlier, you, you were talking about the trade deadline and how it's hard to make deals. I, I think they're going to have to trade for pitching. And, you know, whether that's rental pitching or, you know, guys with two to three years, you know, of control, I, I just, I think they're going to have to go out in the market. What do you think about that? I mean, they're already trying to get creative, signing Clayton Richard. Um, I, I know with this whole, like now Rodon hitting the 10-day IL, basically your options are Dane Dunning, Clayton Richard, or pulling Ross Detweiler from the bullpen to the rotation. I mean, the other thing is, who knows, maybe we will see Rick Renneria throw in a bullpen by committee. Wouldn't be the first time. I and mean, we saw him get real creative last year using some openers. Boy, how many times did we see Manny Banuelos and things like that? Um, it'd be interesting. I, I'd have to look at, at the trade market and see who's available. But again, it's, it's, it's so detailed now because you got to see who's available. Are they playing or did they opt out? Do you think they're likely to opt out who they're playing for, what their contract is like, and uh, what what are the White Sox willing to give up for a rental, even if it is a long-term rental? Because again, who knows how long this season will go. It could last until the World Series. It could end by the end of this week. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that were to happen. Um, but it, it is very clear the White Sox need help with their rotation. Um as opposed to their their bullpen, their bullpen's top 10 in the league. And the rotation, which is lacking depth right now and is hopefully seeing some improvements, is all the way towards the bottom. Um, so there needs to be some help. I, I'd be interested to see if they pull the trigger on pulling a, a Ross Detweiler out of the bullpen because he's been doing so well. But I... I would imagine they would bring up Clayton Richard first just for uh, the experience that he's had. I mean, you're pulling up a Dane Dunning who had one appearance in exhibition ball against Milwaukee, three walks in two innings, um, and making his major league debut and expecting to jump right into this rotation maybe. So I, I don't know. Yeah, you mentioned the bullpen. And, you know, it's a bullpen that I didn't really feel that great about entering the season just because, you know, they don't have that many hard throwers down there. Um, I didn't expect Devin Marshall to get off to the start that he's gotten off to. Um, I also, I mean, nobody anticipated them throwing these relievers as often as they've had, as they have. So I guess how, how surprising is it that the bullpen's been this good and how long can they keep it up being this good? Uh, I mean... I'm definitely surprised, but you you saw some of those pieces already succeeding last year, um, like Jace Fry and Aaron Bummer and Evan Marshall. Um, so I, I think the other thing is some of these younger guys, like you were mentioned earlier with, with Cody Hoyer and, and Jimmy Lambert until he got hurt. Um, the one thing I thought about heading into this year, and Nico Horner of the Cubs kind of validated it, it's it might be easier for these guys to succeed when they know 
all it care all that matters is winning right now that's really all that matters obviously you want to have your individual success but at the end of the day it's going to come down to winning because this is a sprint of a season nobody is going to mark down these stats they're not going to break any records i mean it's it's all about the team right now and there's more opportunities to be on the roster because it's expanded so you are taking a little bit of pressure off of these people now, if anyone could just tell the Cubs bullpen this, I'm sure everything would be fixed. Um, but I, I kind of saw that being a possibility heading into this year for the White Sox bullpen. If that's the reason why they're succeeding, maybe. But I, I think they already had a good base, and it's just kind of a contagious thing right now. I mean, even Alex Colomay uh, looked a lot sharper yesterday against Milwaukee than he did in his debut. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I'm wildly surprised but definitely surprised yeah, shut out evan marshall by the way i mean are we even surprised at this point the value that evan marshall brings out of the pen for the white Sox? i'm telling you one of the most underappreciated arms in baseball anyway all right so you mentioned cody hoyer matt foster ian hamilton also a couple of other young arms prospects in the white Sox system that they're taking advantage of one also mentioned aaron bummer and jace fry these are homegrown arms and the white Sox are building a bullpen internally and it's really impressive. So shout out to the White Sox developmental department as well. We mentioned Dane Dunning a little bit. I want to stick on that topic. And Joe, really good stuff so far. A few more questions for you and we'll let you go. With Dane Dunning's situation, does the concern surrounding Jimmy Lambert and, and Carlos Rodon, the developments of those two players, is there concern um, that you associated as well with, with Dane Dunning and potentially bringing him up? Because you mentioned, and I think it's a great point, you're bringing him up, limited experience, right? Even in the exhibition in the summer camps, he's coming off major surgery. Is it smart for the White Sox to bring him up now as opposed to, say, maybe in a month when the season is ramping hopefully down and there's not as much demand expected on that arm for a guy who hasn't pitched in the big leagues ever in his career? Yeah, I'd imagine that actually might be the the safer route to go with a Dane Dunning. Uh, you, you definitely get your experience or whatever you're working in Schaumburg. And then uh, I know it is a shortened season, but you're not asking for the long haul of being a major league rookie. Uh, I, I know you were basing this question off of can what happened to Jimmy Lambert and Carlos Rodon happen to Dane Dunning because of Tommy John surgery. I, I guess the only thing I could bring up is Dunning's was a little bit earlier. I think his was in March yeah. Uh, Lambert's mm-hmm. was in June. And uh, again, just going back to Carlos Rodon and, and how unfortunate this is for him. Cause I mean, you talk about a workhorse, that guy was able to live in Chicago or I'm sorry, the Sox allowed him to live in Chicago last year to rehab and, and be with the clubhouse and be with the team. Uh, that just goes to show what type of work mentality that he has. But I, I don't know. I, those, that's one of the things you're not going to know un, until Dane Dunning takes a major league mound and then if he does succeed, all hunky-dory. If he doesn't, then you bring the questions, was he rushed up? Um, is this a result of Tommy John's surgery not helping his progression? I, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, but, but I do think he can be a pivotal pitcher for this Sox pitching staff, whether they bring him up and put him in the bullpen or, or they do put him in the rotation right away. Um, I don't know. It, it will be interesting, though. Yeah, I think at this point it's clear that Dunning is 
the best, I would say, realistic option in terms of talent, but you also got to be careful with someone like Dane Dunning in his situation. So, uh, all right, moving on a little bit, talking about Schaumburg and some young arms that are a part of that group there. The White Sox are monitoring, or at least allowing Garrett Crochet and now Jared Kelly to work out with major league players over there in their player pool. And it's interesting because these are two guys in the most recent draft class, Garrett Crochet, a first round pick, Jared Kelly out of high school in the second round. And as, as we all know, the major league baseball amateur draft was shrunk from 40 rounds to five. And we can expect moving forward that the draft is going to change. It's going to shorten most likely um, from 40 to whatever, maybe 20, 25. We'll see. What are your thoughts there? Uh, the state of minor league baseball related to, I guess, the impact of the draft being shortened. Yeah, well, clearly this hits home. Uh, this was supposed to be my 10th year in the minor leagues, independent and affiliated. Um, I was supposed to be number seven with the Kane County Cougars. Uh, I love the minor leagues. I love minor league baseball. I love minor league fans. I love coaches, their players, the progression, just the whole atmosphere of minor league baseball. Um, basically, and, and this is this is my belief, Major League Baseball has basically had the luxury of minor league baseball all these years, kind of forever, um, when it started as, you know, weird three-eye leagues and, and everything like that. It, it has just turned into such a beast that some teams have seven minor league affiliates. So you think about it, 25 guys per roster. If you've got seven, let's see, quick math in my head, that's what, 170 people? Does that sound right? And that's just players. That doesn't include players that are injured. That doesn't include coaches. That doesn't include managers. That doesn't include trainers or strength and conditioning coaches. They're employing a lot of people. So baseball is basically had this luxury because they can pay these players very, very cheap by selling them the dream of you can be a major league player one day. Now, nobody's forcing these players to play. That's it's clearly their decision. But I mean, you're talking about guys who played in college, who are professional athletes, who are making chump change so that guys like Zach Greinke can make a million dollars a start. I mean, that that's just the way baseball has built itself. Um, they have this, and football doesn't have this. Basketball is kind of getting this now, but that's one team. That's a very small farm system. Hockey's the only closest thing, but it's, it's still a different animal because hockey is pretty much two affiliates. So basically, Major League Baseball dug themselves in this hole, and now... They've been just recently over the past couple of years, they've been getting exposed by how little they're paying players. I mean, heck, I have stayed in some very bad hotels and yes, motels in the minor leagues, but that's what you do because those are the facilities given to you. And the age old slogan for minor league baseball, don't like it, play better. No matter what you do, don't like it, do better, which yes, there's some validity to that, but I mean, you're talking about guys eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Before, like recently this past year, yes, teams have bulked up finances for player, account uh, player accountability, or I'm sorry, player accommodations. 
So you're seeing that improve. But I mean, I'm willing to say that baseball kind of benefits and only in the minor league aspect I'm talking, but they kind of benefit from this pandemic because they can blame shortening the draft on it. They can blame cutting down minor league teams on it. Some of these minor league teams are going to just go under just because of the pandemic solely, but it's basically just cutting off people that you don't want to pay anymore and kind of don't need to pay. You get your diamonds in the rough. That happens. And that's why it's been so great for Major League Baseball for so long, because you can employ all these guys. And and the, the other way you look at it, you look at, okay, like a, a Luis Robert. I mean, what's he doing in rookie ball? He's way too far advanced for all this talent, but he needs to play. So you need to have nine guys on your team, nine guys on the other team. And of course, there's plenty more people involved, but that's the bare minimum just so that Luis Robert can get his at-bats in. So unfortunately, I think we're going to see a much thinner version of minor league baseball for the foreseeable future. And that starts with the draft. And it's very unfortunate. I mean, look at Mark Burley. He was what, 38th round draft pick? You're not going to see that anymore. Granted, yes, there's still situations where a guy cannot get drafted, go on independent ball, get signed by a team, but you're, you're cutting down the availability for that to happen. Uh, it is a shame, but I, it's, it's just kind of what's going to happen, and it's just the new normality that everyone has to get used to. Yeah, so we've had Baseball America guests on and a bunch of people talking about, you know, just like the jockeying for position for some of these 120 affiliates, basically, you know, and you're you're over in Kane County. What do you, what do you think, I guess, the immediate future of the Midwest League looks like once this all shakes out? You think it stays pretty much the same? Uh, I definitely think there will be changes. I've always been a fan of the Midwest League, clearly, because I'm from here. But the Midwest League just has a lot of good things going. I mean, you've got ballparks like Dayton, Fort Wayne, West Michigan, Great Lakes, Lansing. I mean, those those could all probably be AAA ballparks if they needed to. Um, the, you do have your, your smaller places. It's funny. I'm, I'm in the West Division. Kane County's in the West Division. And the contrast between the two divisions is always joked about because the East is is the uh, hoity-toity side where they, they drink fine wine and caviar. And when you go to the West Division, it's it's uh, peanuts and beer. But, uh, I, I mean, I, I love my spot in Kane County. We've got a fantastic ballpark. We've got some of the, the most consistent fans we have. I mean, when when um, attendance goes out, it, it's pretty much always Dayton, Fort Wayne fighting for one and two. And Kane County is right around there with West Michigan or so. And, uh, I can't speak highly enough about the Kane County fans. And I know you guys were talking about how you've gone to games too. Um, you'll, I, I'd imagine you're going to see some of the smaller towns, unfortunately, like I, I see Clinton and Burlington probably being in jeopardy if they do cut down the minor league system. Um, but you got a lot of great ballparks. you got a lot of great facilities. You know, it just it's not just about the ballpark. It's about the batting cages, the dugouts, the clubhouses, and for the most part, the Midwest League sits pretty good. And that's that's the other thing is uh, I, I'm pretty sure the Midwest League is the third best league in terms of attendance. And one and two are the two AAA leagues. So we do pretty well for ourselves. And I, I'm very proud to say that I've, I've been working in the Midwest League for quite some time. Um, 
the other thing is uh, the, the travel's a lot easier because so many teams are so close with each other. I, I'm sure the Bowling Green Hot Rods down in Kentucky, his, that broadcaster, Sean Mernon, wouldn't agree with me. He's making some long road trips. But in Kane County, our furthest road trip in the division is Wisconsin. It's three and a half hours. I mean, that's nothing. So the, the Midwest League definitely has a lot of benefits going for them. Yeah, so for those that don't know, um, you know, the Kane County Cougars, it's a Arizona Diamondbacks affiliate. You know, you obviously didn't have a season to call, but, you know, headed into this season, um, was there anybody, you know, even in the Diamondback system that you were that you were very interested to see or somebody that was going to be coming through? And then over the past few years, I guess, obviously, you've seen Wander Franco, but who, who are some of the, the best players you've seen come through Kane County? Um, well, through Kane County, I, I have been lucky. Actually, my first year, we were with the Cubs. Uh, that team won the won the championship. Ironically, they beat the Cleveland single-A affiliate. Um, it, it, we had Kyle Schwarber. It was, the, the team was unbelievable. Um, but moving on with, with Arizona, I've definitely seen some, some great pieces. Uh, John Duplantier, who is bouncing around the major leagues now, He's one of the most talented pitchers I've seen. Jazz Chisholm, who was traded to Miami's organization this past year. Uh, shortstop, who's actually the half-brother of Lucius Fox. He's got a lot of talent. Uh, we're talking Chicago. I saw Alec Thomas last year, and he stole my heart. That man can be a five-tool player in the major leagues, and I would not be surprised if he does so. He won Midwest League Player of the, player of the Year last year. Same award that Eloy Jimenez won as a Cubs prospect back in 2016, I believe. Uh, we had a really high prospect team last year. Uh, we had Blaze Alexander, who coincidentally is Zach Plesak's cousin. Uh, Buddy Kennedy, who's Don Money's grandson. Uh, we had a couple of great arms, Levi Kelly, Matt Tabor. Uh, so definitely some strong talent. Uh, in terms of the opposing talent, Royce Lewis uh, was – unbelievable to see. I mean, you, you just see the difference uh, in single A ball when you get some real special talent. You saw that with Kyle Schwarber. Uh, I pretty much saw that with Alec Thomas, saw it with Royce Lewis. I didn't get to see too much of Wander Franco because uh, we only see that division for three games and once a year. So teams in the other division, you don't get to see all that often. But it, it is cool to see uh, a lot of the talent come by. Well, let's see, Dustin May was pitching for Great Lakes my first year. And I remember looking at that dude warming up in the bullpen, and the first thing I saw was his hair. And his hair was wider than his shoulders. I'm like, who the heck is this guy? And then he takes them out and just blows everyone away. Um, but then I, the unfortunate thing is you see high prospects that just do absolutely nothing. Um, so it's... It's interesting to, to learn about these guys and to get to know them on, on a pretty good basis. I know Sox fans don't like this name, but we had Brad Keller back in 2015, and he is still one of my favorite guys overall. And I know Sox fans are not going to like to hear that, um, but he was a guy that was drafted out of high school. And, okay, here's the thing about Brad Keller and minor league baseball. When it's your turn to throw and you take the bus to the game, the starting pitcher is supposed to get their own seat, and so is the starting catcher. A lot of times, guys will be either prima donnas about it and make it known to everyone in the bus, hey, I, I get my own row, I get my own row. 
other times people will be sitting there and then just casually tell the guy that's sitting next to him, hey, it's my day. I need you to move. Brad Keller would sit next to whoever on his day pitching. He was just that down-to-earth, uh, homegrown Southern guy. And I'm not saying all this because I'm trying to get Sox fans on Brad Keller's good side. I'm a big Tim Anderson fan and the way he plays the games. Uh, but I honestly think the whole Brad Keller-Tim Anderson situation wasn't entirely Brad Keller's decision. I know he's the guy throwing the baseball, but he's also a young rookie on that team who will listen to orders if given. So that's what I'll say about that. But um, yeah, it's it's cool to learn the different personalities and the different people you, you get to meet and uh, develop relationships throughout minor league baseball. That's Joe Brand. You can follow him on Twitter at Joe underscore Brand one, the number one. Really good stuff. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, you talk about minor league baseball. There's so much fun in following minor league baseball within a season, especially in your case, covering a team, seeing the progression of these players on a day-to-day basis. Uh, It makes all the difference in the world when you're evaluating talent. So hopefully minor league baseball can do okay, and hopefully you can stay on your feet as well, Joe. I know it's a tough time for everyone here. As we wrap things up, what is it that you're working on? I know you're a part of the Baseball From Home podcast on the House of L Network, but uh, anything that you're working on that we can look forward to over the next couple of days? Definitely just trying to stay relevant. So, uh, yeah, appreciate the plug about the Baseball From Home podcast. You can find that on on Apple, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, pretty much everything, or follow me, Connor McKnight or Lawrence Holmes. Those are, those are getting released every Monday and Friday mornings. Having a lot of fun with that. Uh, do some work at WGN Radio. I do Saturday morning sports updates on the Lou Manfredini, Mr. Fix-It show, or How Smarts Radio is what it's called now, and uh, David Hochberg after that. And uh, cover the Blackhawks a little bit, too. Chris Bowden and I, Chris Bowden's the uh, Blackhawks pre- and post-host. We do a podcast. Uh, we're probably going to be doing a few more since the Hawks are in the playoffs right now. But, yeah, would uh, would love any more <laughs> attention that we can get to any of that stuff. So, I just appreciate you guys having me on today. That'll do it for this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can check out our full library on anchor.fm forward slash Future Sox. Also subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and more. One more time for Joe Brand of WGN Radio, as well as the Baseball From Home Podcast, a part of the House of L Podcast Network. Joe Brand. And James Fox. My name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much one more time for tuning in to the Future Sox podcast. We'll talk to you all next week.